know as we were singing about how we put our trust in God alone it just made me think about what we're about to do next it's time to give church it's time to give tithes and offerings and other gifts presenting our best to the king you know and I, I just think how true it is that in order to give the way we're called to give our trust has to be completely in Jesus it doesn't make any sense to give if you don't have faith in Jesus if you need an envelope you can raise your hand and an usher will get one to you we also have mobile giving available on our app or website this morning as as we prepare to worship in our giving I want to read Proverbs 11 24 through 25 to you and it says this there is one who scatters yet increases more and there is one who withholds more than is right but it leads to poverty the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself and I have a few thoughts about this proverb this morning it's so backwards from what we know outside of faith this doesn't make any sense that the person who scatters and, and throws what they have gives what they have that they would be the one who is blessed and they would be the one who has the increase it doesn't make any sense if it's done outside of faith and so as I read 20 verse 24 I, I read it like this there is one who scatters in faith yet increases more see you you can throw money away you can throw things away you can scatter it out there into the world all day long and if it's done outside of faith it's really done out of waste but in faith there is an increase that comes because it's not done just for the sake of giving or just for the sake of wanting to you know maybe gain something else it's done in faith believing that what the word has said is true that as I give I know my God is going to increase me I know that I'll be blessed as I give I have a faith a confidence in Jesus that he's not gonna let me go on to lack and it really comes back to what I was just talking about a moment ago what we sang this morning that when our faith is totally in Jesus Christ when we are totally reliant on him well we can give we can scatter without a problem because we know God is going to bless us we know that we're going to be provided for because Jesus is the provider amen I also think it's interesting it says there's one who withholds more than is right but leads to poverty now, I'm not advocating that anybody give everything they have away and, and you know foolishly or outside of faith maybe even store everything in I think we we store things with faith as well there are good money handling principles of storing and, and investing and preparing for the right time to give we need to be conscious of those too but it says he who withholds more than is right what that tells me is that God speaks to us about what is right we know what is right to give and when he prompts us to do that and we scatter what he's told us we ought to give well we go on to verse 25 and it says the generous soul be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself you know because I trust the Word of God I know that this is true because I have faith I know that what is being said here isn't just a nice idea it is the truth it is a, a principle God put in place for the world that still works today 
And when I read, he who waters will also be watered himself. I think about what water does. You know, in, in the Bible, water was representative of something that sustains life. And as I read that, I think he who gives out that which sustains his life is going to receive that which sustains his life. God gives us everything we need to have life. He gave us Jesus. He gave us grace. He gave us everything we need to live this life here and now. It says our job is to be he who waters. And he who waters will be watered himself. He who gives out that thing that sustains will also receive that thing that sustains. Isn't that good news? He makes it really easy for us. Give in faith. Water. And you will be watered. I will provide. Is your trust completely in Jesus this morning? Do you totally believe his word? Are you convinced that it is the truth? Well, if you are, then you can give this morning with a heart that's glad, knowing that this principle remains true in our life today, that as we water, as we give, we scatter what we have, it will be sown back into us. God will provide. Amen. Let's pray and bless our tithe and offering this morning. Lord, we give this morning in faith. We give knowing that your word is true. And because your word says that you bless and you bring increase, we have an expectation of that. God, this is not the only reason we give. We don't give just for the purpose of, of getting or benefiting. But we do know that because your word is true, this principle applies. And so we can be expectant. Faith brings an expectation. And so this morning as we give out of a glad heart, out of worship for you, scattering, watering, like you've talked about in this proverb. God, we have expectation that you will be faithful, that you will do what your word says. So we just ask this morning that as we give with this heart, a heart of worship, we also give an expectation. Lord, we ask you to do what you always do. We thank you that you're a faithful God. You're always good. You're always true. You don't contradict your word. And Lord, because of that, we give in faith today. And we have great expectation for what you will do through this seed. We have great expectation of what you will do for your kingdom through this gift, through this sacrifice. We believe that in the name of Jesus. And when everybody prayed, amen. Amen. God bless you all as you give. continue on in the series we begun last week, Unrefined But Defined. Did you get anything out of last week's message about how God sees us through a different kind of perspective than we sometimes see ourselves? 
You know, we, we have this picture up on the screen, and um, I was talking to Junior before service, and he confirmed that this is, in fact, an unrefined diamond. And so my speculation last week was, was right, all right? Praise the Lord that, that I don't have to correct myself on that point this morning. So this is what we see, an unrefined diamond. It's rough. You know, it, it, it doesn't look maybe quite as nice as what many of you ladies have on your left ring finger this morning. It's not refined. It's, it's maybe not as pretty. But we look at it and we do know that because of what it is, it holds a, a tremendous amount of value. And just like an unrefined diamond holds a tremendous amount of value, we, as God's children, hold a tremendous amount of value, whether we are the finished product yet, or we still look like this unrefined stone. We have value to God. And it's because He sees the potential for what we could be. He sees the finished product of what I, a child of God, a a Christian, could look like. I have value for that reason. We talked about some of the things of how God looks at us. We talked about how He knows more than we know. He, He calls out things that we do not see uh, being the truth yet because of his uh, greater knowledge of how things are. This morning I, I want to look kind of along a different vein in this same subject. I want to look more towards identity today. And we're going to go to Galatians 2 verse 21st. We're looking at a new identity in Christ. Last week we focused more so on how God sees us with a different uh, potential, with a different perspective than sometimes we may see ourselves Maybe then other people might see us at times. God looks with a different lens, with a different perspective. And because he has a greater perspective, he can see things in us and call things out in us, give us definitions and names before we're refined as if we had already been refined. And so that's God's part. This morning, we're kind of going to go a different direction in this series, and we're going to talk about how because God sees us in this new way, in this new light, in this new definition, because he's given me a new name than what I might have had before, now I need to accept that new name and begin to live with it myself. And we're going to look at another man in the Bible who exemplifies this quite well. You see, we need to come in this morning with the attitude that not only does God see what I could be, not only does God have the potential perspective for my life, but because he does, now I have it as well. I'm choosing to believe what he said about me rather than what I see about me. It's an identity issue. How do I identify myself? How do I see myself? How do I promote myself? How would I explain myself? Is it in line with the word and what God has said? Or do I have a little bit of work to do in in redefining my life to match God's definition? So this is what we're looking at today. Are you excited about that? Do you think this will be beneficial to you this morning? Well, then let's get into the word in Galatians 2 verse 20. The writer says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, because we've been crucified with Christ, our definition has changed. And I think Galatians 2.20 says that quite well. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer I who live. That's kind of an interesting thought. It's no longer I who am living. Well, what he means by that is, This person that I was before my new life in Christ is no longer who I am. 
That's no longer my definition who I might have been before because that person has been crucified, put to death with Christ. And I've been baptized and made a new creation. Hallelujah. And so it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I thought that was so interesting too, because what it tells us is that even though we still have this body, you know, when you get born again, unless you had a very different salvation experience from me, you probably woke up in the same body the next morning. Same life around you. What had been made new was on the inside. And so when he says, this life which I now live in the flesh... He's saying, I have the same life. I've got the same body. I've got the same family, same circumstances. That hasn't changed. But what has changed is I now live by faith in the Son of God. And because I live by faith in the Son of God, I live by faith in the definition that he's given for my life. I no longer look at my unrefined life and unrefined circumstances to define me. But I look at what faith says, what Jesus said. I look at Christ's definition for my life now, no longer my flesh. Isn't that good? That we can look beyond our flesh to be defined. God's definition of you, the way he describes you in his word and what his spirit will confirm in your heart is that his definition for you is one of completion, one of fullness, one, one of refinement. Because God doesn't look at you in your current state as the unrefined diamond. He sees you as the complete product. That's where we read about how we're we're coming into fullness in Christ. Mm -hmm. He who begun a good work is faithful to complete it. Well, the work that he's completing is refining us. So that our refined status matches up to his defined status. Where our definition and our level of refinement are one and the same. Here's the deal. We're going to be refined as long as we're living here. As long as we're living the life in the flesh, in faith in Christ, there's going to be refinement work to be done. And that's okay. That just means we've got more to learn, more to grow in while we're here. But one day we're going to ascend to be with the Father. And when that happens, we get a glorified body. The flesh goes away, and what we're left with is God's defined version of who we are. Praise the Lord. So that's something to look forward to one day. But for right here and right now, we get to build heaven on earth. We get to refine ourselves to that definition that God has for us. Hallelujah. And so this morning, my question for you is how are you identified? How are you defined? How do you define yourself? Is it based on thoughts you have about yourself? Is it based on what others may say or think about you? Or is it based on what God has said about you? This is kind of a quote that that I think is good for today. I'm aligning my identity perspective with God's. I'm aligning the way that I look at me with the way that God looks at me. Because that's what faith does. Faith looks beyond what I think, what I know. And it says, what does God say? What does God know? Because that's what I choose to believe. Faith is believing what we don't see yet. And because I may not see myself how he's described me yet, well, I still have faith that says I can believe it even though I don't see it yet. And so I believe based on faith, 
not based on what I see. And so I take God's word. I take God's perspective of potential to define my life. And so when I this week, when I say I've got potential perspective, I'm not just saying that God sees me a different way. I'm saying that I see me a different way because of how God sees me. Would you say that with me this morning? I've got potential perspective. I have a perspective of what God has called me. I'm beginning to believe, have faith, and see what he's called out in my life, not just what I see in the flesh at this very moment. It's a greater perspective that takes us further in life. And so this morning, as we get into our, uh, our unrefined but defined character for today, I'll give you a little bit of information about who this guy is, and maybe you could already guess it. But uh, he's very different from Peter, who we looked at last week. You know, Peter was kind of rough and tumble, maybe, maybe like on the outside, looked pretty unrefined. I mean, he was a fisherman, and he just, he was kind of gritty. You know, that's how I would describe Peter. He was kind of a gritty guy. This guy is, is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum in that, that way. Um, he already had a pretty serious like, reputation throughout Israel. People knew who this guy was. Um, his whole early life was spent as like one of the top enemies to Christ and to Christians. So, I mean, if we're looking at refinement in, in God's eyes, I mean, he... He was like way on the, the bad end of the spectrum. I mean, he was like an enemy, constantly trying to, to hurt and damage and, and even kill both Christians and the reputation of Christ. And the other fun fact I'm going to give you this morning before I tell you who it is, is that he wrote about 28% of the words in the New Testament and the book of Galatians, which we just read. Can anybody guess who we're talking about this morning? Paul. But before he was called Paul, did you know he had a different name? Saul. Saul. And so this morning as we go to Acts 26, 9 through 11, we're looking at Saul who would become Paul, who would be named Paul. And we're going to see how God took someone spiritually unrefined and used him to do great things for the kingdom. How many of you know that even though we may start out unrefined, we can do great things for the kingdom? You know, as we talk about these characters in, in this series, we're not just talking about them because we need to hear, you know, stories about Bible characters. We're also putting ourselves in, in these examples, in, in these historical uh, accounts of men and women who lived. And we're seeing how those same things that were true for them are true for us today. Because God is no respecter of persons. Just because it was 2,000 years ago and, and it is in the book doesn't mean that he has a different plan for you today. He wants to do the same thing for you now that he did for them then. Because even as the church and, and what we'll read about Paul working on behalf of the church 2,000 years ago, well, we're the church today. We're in the same age of grace. It hasn't changed. And so the same thing that Christ wanted to do through them and with them, he wants to do through you and I and with you and I. And that's exciting. And so let's read Acts 26, 9 through 11, talking about Saul. At, the, at this point, he was standing before um, 
a king. And he, was, he had been brought in on an account. So he had, he had been refined. His life had been changed. At this point, he was starting to work for Jesus. And so he was on trial because he had been preaching the word. And people got mad. And there was this big riot in the city. And so now he's standing before the guy in charge, being judged. And he's having to give an account for how things worked out. And so he's recalling what had happened earlier in his life. And what he says is, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. He's telling on himself right here. He's given the background for for his conversion into Christ. He's talking about who he was before he came to Christ. He says, I I, I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's given his list of all the things he did to Christians, and it's a pretty bad list. I mean, if we just point out a couple of the highlights that we read here, he says, I I thought I had to do all these things contrary to the name of Jesus, which means he's doing the exact opposite of what Jesus was saying he ought to do. He said, many of the saints I shut up in prison. He was jailing believers. If Paul, well, if Saul showed up at our church today, he would put us all in chains and take us all to jail. That's who he was. He goes on and he says, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. By standards, he was a murderer. Even though he had the authority to do it, he was actively pursuing the death of Christians. He wanted believers in Christ to be murdered and killed. He says, I cast my vote against them. And he was happy to do it. I mean, he stood by. He was encouraging it. He, he cheered it on while they were getting put to death. He goes on. He says more. I, I punished them often in every synagogue. He came into the places of worship and began to punish them. This one's bad. He says, I compelled them to blaspheme. That means not only did he like attack them for being believers. He like he he worked on them until they begin to renounce Christ. He got them to to talk bad about Jesus for fear of what might happen otherwise. I mean very much uh, an agenda that is against Christians in Christ. He says being exceedingly enraged against them. He got mad a lot. I mean, he kind of sounds like a guy who would get mad a lot. I mean, if you're running around, like, killing people and and beating them and doing all this bad stuff, I mean, yeah, he's probably mad. He goes, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I thought this was crazy. Not only does he go to the places where they are and attack them, he follows them around. I mean, he, like, pursues them to get the job done. The guy is ruthless. He's relentless about attacking Christ. And in Acts 8, verse 3, We just see kind of a a synopsis of of what he was doing as well. It says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That summarizes it up pretty good. Saul was creating havoc for the church. He was creating havoc for Christians, dragging them off and putting them into prison. I could just say this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Saul's uh, unrefinement, but we could. He was a bad dude. That's how I'll summarize it. 
He was not a person that you wanted to come into contact with. He was not the great man of, of, of God representing the Messiah, leading people into the way to heaven. Very much he was against what Christ had come to do. You see that Paul, Saul was, was kind of not the nicest fella. You see that? Spiritually speaking, we could say he was very unrefined. Because he was not... Uh, he was not taking his definition based on what Jesus had said. He, he completely renounced Jesus. He didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And one of the things we looked at last week, and we're going to see it again today, is that you cannot become spiritually refined. You cannot step into God's definition for your life without a relationship with Jesus. Outside of, of Jesus and the grace he brings, you're trying to do it all on your own. And really, that's what we're going to see here with Saul as we move on. And let's go to Acts 9, 3 through 6, where we're going to begin talking about five things this morning. I have five things, and we're going to move through them quickly. Five life-defining, life-refining revelations. Five life-defining, life-refining revelations, or we could say truths, that we need to know if we're going to pursue God's definition for us. We see it with Paul, and we're, we're kind of just going to walk through um, his life uh, and, and see how, really, Jesus got to his heart. Jesus began to change him from the inside out into a man who would do great things for the kingdom. What, what I would say one of the most refined uh, believers, apostles that we see in the New Testament he was up there with, with these refined guys, these defined guys who did a lot for Jesus. And it was because he let these five things happen to him and, and get into his heart. Acts 9, 3 through 6, it says this. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then we go down just a few verses to Acts 9, 17, and it says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell uh, from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. This is, this is the story of how Saul got saved. He encountered Jesus. And he had a moment where he said, Lord, what do I do? And God said, you need to go to the city, and there you're going to find out what you need to do. And so he went to the city, and uh, it says that he received his sight. He began to see, and, and I think this is representative. I know we didn't read over it uh, for time's sake mostly, but if you continue on after Acts 9-6, you'll see that there was something like a scale across his eyes. He was blinded while he went in to go meet with Ananias in the city. That's a, a representation of how God, he, he was blind before. But now that he's become saved, he has begun to see clearly. He's no longer seen through the, the shade or the distortion of the religion that he had followed up to that point. His incorrect views, the, the blindness he had had to Christ was now coming off. He could now see clearly who Jesus was. And I believe he could see clearly how Jesus wanted to define him. 
No longer as a persecutor of Christians, but a champion of Christ. Amen? And so... He was then filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked last week about how the Holy Spirit is necessary to become defined and refined. Without the Holy Spirit, we, we don't have the helper, the intercessor, the guide, the one we really need. I mean, Jesus said, I'm going to send him to you for your benefit. Well, I want the benefit that Jesus is sending my way. And so we need the Holy Spirit, just as Paul here, Saul, who would become Paul, received the Holy Spirit. It said he, immediately he rose, scales fell off, received his sight, and he was baptized. Well, we know that Jesus' great commission was to go and baptize the world in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I don't think this means that, you know, Saul, Paul, just got into the, the tank and got baptized and came up out of the water. No, he received an immersion in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He received God into his life. He had an encounter with Christ that changed him forever. You know, I think another thing that, that I found interesting about this encounter with Christ is uh, what, what God said. Jesus, he goes, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I thought, what does that mean? What, what does it mean, kick against the goads? Well, I looked it up, I studied this out, and, and basically the goad is a part of um, animal husbandry that they would have used in that time. The goad is, it's like this long pointy stick that when they were trying to get oxen to do what they wanted to do, they'd basically poke them with the stick. And that's how they would make them do what they wanted. They, they would kind of drive them with the stick. Do we have any cattle farmers in here today who have something similar to a goad. It's like you got to poke to get the cows to do what you want them to do. I mean, they're bigger than you. They, they've got their own will, their own thing that they think they ought to do. Well, sometimes it takes a goad to get them moving. The goad, he says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What that essentially means is that it's harder for you to resist what God is asking you to do. You're hurting yourself more by resisting God, then what would happen if you just went the way he wants you to go? I thought that was interesting. Quit kicking against the goads. Quit resisting God. Quit pushing back. Because when the cows would push back and they would try to kick, it would just push that, that stick further in and it would hurt them more. Sometimes it's like that with us. It's like, no God, I don't want to do what you're trying to make me do. But it ends up hurting you more than if you just went the direction he wants you to go. So quit kicking against the goads. Tell somebody that. Quit kicking the goads. Quit kicking the goads. See, Saul was changed forever because he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful. Yes, he is. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I love this verse because it talks about Jesus and us having an encounter. How every single one of us had a moment in our life. If you've, if you've received Jesus as your Lord, then there was a moment in your life where you had an encounter with God. And it shouldn't be the only one you ever have. I mean, you should encounter him a lot more once you receive him. This was not the last time that Saul slash Paul heard from God. But we all have to start with an encounter with Christ. And this is what we see with Saul. He had an encounter with Christ that changed him forever. I think sometimes people ask, you know, how... How do you experience Jesus? How, how does Jesus come into your life? How, you know, how does that all get started? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us pretty clearly. It says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. God is calling. Yes. He is calling out. Yes. Saying, 
Saul, Saul. Insert your name there. Christ is calling out to you today. He he's called out to you those years ago or maybe less time than that when you were saved for the first time. He was calling. Jesus is faithful to call. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship. Called into the family. Called into the body. Christ is calling out. What we must do is respond. Amen. If we respond to Jesus' call, then we have in encounters with Christ like we see here in Acts 9. Where the worst person for Christ, because God is faithful to call, they can be converted. Amen. An encounter with Jesus Christ will change your life. And he's always calling. What's interesting about Saul, we're going to move on to our next point. The first point, if, if you didn't catch it, was an encounter with Christ. That's a life-defining, life-refining moment, is encountering Jesus Christ. The next thing we see about Saul, and, and I'm going to give you some, some background for this, he had been living the most religious life one could possibly live, but he still lacked a Savior and a Lord. He was doing all the right things, except he didn't have Jesus. Our second point is realizing there's a difference in man's standard of refinement and God's plan. There's a big difference between Man's standard of refinement, how, how a, uh, any person could look and say, yeah, they've got it together. Yeah, they know God. Yeah, they're religious. Yeah, they've got it figured out. That definition, that, that standard of refinement and God's plan are totally different. We're going to go to Philippians 3 verse 5 and talk about how Saul had man's standard of refinement down. It says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. That's a description of Saul. And let me tell you why that's significant. A Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew. Essentially, what's being said here is that Saul was the most religious, like had it together the most by all the standards, like he had it going on. He was refined by their standard. He was refined. Benjamin, a uh, little background on that. Benjamin was uh, the one tribe that stayed loyal. They didn't split off when the other tribes split in Judah. Jerusalem, which is the holy city uh, for Israel, was located on the tribe of Benjamin's land. So it's like there's an extra holiness factor if you're from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he had both a Jewish mother and a Jewish father. He had kept all the traditions from the time he was young. That's why they talk about the circumcision, because he did it right. His parents did it right. He had been raised up in the religion, raised up in the church. She hadn't missed a step. And he spoke the language of Hebrew. He, he was able to communicate in, in the language of Hebrew, even though that region had begun to go to Greek. Talking about Pharisees. The Pharisees were, were quoted as the separated ones. They were like the really religious people, okay? They, they were the ones that really had it together, that were really defined. He studied under a man named Gamaliel, which was like, he was like the best teacher of that day. Learning Hebrew, learning about the law, he had studied under the best. It was like he went to the Ivy League school. And then going on, his father had been a Pharisee. He had grown up in it. He, he knew how it was supposed to go. By man's standards, Saul was the most refined 
Jew that there was. Like it, it didn't get any holier than Saul by their standards. And it's so interesting that the prestige of man does not equate to the approval of God. The prestige of man, just because everybody in Israel would have looked at Saul and said, he has it together. Man, he's got this thing right. The people thought that of him, but he did not have God's approval. Because God's standard of refinement and man's standard of refinement are different. And we have to look to God's definition of us rather than how men would want to describe us. Or even myself sometimes. I'm sure for Saul, there was, there was a, uh, an, uh, an attractive thing to him about being like the holiest of the holy in the Jewish culture. You know, he probably liked going around and, oh, that's Saul. You know, you know about Saul, right? He, he's got it together. He knows all of this stuff. He went to this, this school he knows these people. He studied with this person. His family or these people that did this stuff. I mean, like, he had a reputation. And people thought he was pretty refined. Well, in Matthew 16, 26, we kind of get the same lesson that Paul slash Saul got. It says, For what profit it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What I read, especially with, with this message and studying Saul, as I read this, what I think is I could check all the right boxes to match another person's definition of refinement. But if I don't have it right with God, none of that matters. None of it matters if I'm not pleasing God. If I'm not uh, pursuing God's definition of me, then it's all lost. Who cares if I, I look refined on the outside, if I'm a wreck on the inside? This was the situation of Saul. He had it all together on the outside. He had all the right things going on. But because inside he was missing out on Christ, he, he was in this situation, as we read in Matthew 16, profiting the whole world, but losing his soul. Praise God that he intervened. Amen. That he doesn't... Just let us go on in, in a path of destruction. He saves us out of that. He calls us out of that. Amen? And so we see this. Others or myself may want the outside to look a certain way, but God's perspective looks to my heart. And even if I have everything right on the outside, what matters is that my heart is right towards Christ. When we get our heart set right on Christ, everything on the outside, well, it, it really is temporary and, and somewhat meaningless in contrast. We need to have our hearts set right with Christ. We need to realize that there's a difference in being a refined person in man's view and a refined person in God's view. Do you see that this morning? All right, great. See, Saul got a new standard of success based on a definition God had given him. And I want to say this too, in Acts 26, 16 and 18, what we see is that purpose brings definition. Purpose brings refinement. I believe that part of the reason that Saul began to become refined, Saul began to live up to Christ's definition rather than men's definition, rather than the Pharisees' definition, I believe part of the reason that changed for him is because he got purpose. Acts 26, 16 through 18 says, But rise and stand on your feet. This is Jesus talking to, to Saul slash Paul. He says, But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to, to make you a minister and a witness both 
of the things which you have seen and the things which I will reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saul got a purpose. No longer was his purpose living up to that standard of being the top of the Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He got a new purpose. I'm living life now to pursue what Jesus has called me to do. He said, I'm sending you out to go and minister to the world. You're going to go and you're going to proclaim the gospel. You're going to go and open people's eyes from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. You're going to go out and build the church. Hallelujah. And just because God may not be saying to each of you today, you're going to go and start churches. You're going to go and sail around the seas and, and speak to people who have never heard this message before. He might be saying to you, I'm giving you a new purpose to now go out and proclaim my gospel to your family, to your workplace, to the people who haven't heard. Or they have heard and maybe their hearts have been hardened, but they need someone to step into their life and be a light like they've never experienced before. And you're the one. Hallelujah. It's good to be called. It's good to be chosen by God for this purpose. For the Great Commission to bring the word into the world. This is what we are all called to do. It might not look, well, I can about guarantee you it's not going to look exactly like Paul. You're not going to jump on a boat and sail around the Mediterranean and go from church to church to church and, and write letter and letter and letter and have it compiled in the New Testament. I, yours is going to look different. But when God gives you a purpose, it changes your definition. You no longer look at yourself like my standard of success is measured by what I'm making or, or you know, how many times a week I get invited to go places or, or, you know, how many relationships I have or how many friends I have on Facebook. It's no longer measured in that way. Now my measure of success, my measure of refinement is how am I stacking up with God's purpose for my life? And I'll tell you this, while you might not always be able to be successful in, in the um, tries of the world, God will always give you the grace to be successful in the purpose he's given you. You will always be successful when you are pursuing Christ's purpose because he gives the grace. He wouldn't send you to fail. He wouldn't send you out into his purpose for your life to fail. He wants you to succeed in the purpose he's given you. Hallelujah. That's good news. Let's look at our third point tonight, this morning. (laughs) Yeah, that happens. Always happens. It's okay. Our third point, the third thing we see Saul and Paul experience is he got an accurate revelation of humility. An accurate revelation of humility, which was a key to being able to go on and do great things. Let's talk about humility here for a moment. And notice, I said accurate view of humility. That's very important because humility, if it's an inaccurate view... It it can disrupt you just as much as not having any humility at all. You need an accurate view of humility. The God kind of humility. Not anybody else's definition. So, Paul, the name Paul, means humble. The name Paul means humble. The name Saul means king. 
Saul was in, you know, in the Old Testament, it was the first king of Israel. So that name Saul, I mean, it was probably even part of his, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrew, I'm the top of the heap guy. Well, he was even called like king, okay? His name kind of matched who he was trying to live up to be. Well, when he changed his name to Paul, when he started going by Paul rather than Saul, he was making a new confession of his life. He said, I'm no longer up at the top. I'm no longer living to, to be number one in everything on earth. Rather, I'm living humbly as a servant of Christ. He got an accurate view of humility. Now, the name change comes some time after his conversion, after um, Acts, is it 9, I think, where he experiences, he has an encounter with Jesus. It comes some time after that. I think it's in Acts 12 or 13 is actually where he uses the name Paul for the first time. It was after he had been uh, in the Christian groups, he had begun working with the Christians, and he had begun, well, he was a Christian now, and he had begun preaching and ministering in whatever ways he could around Jerusalem. And then they call him out, and, and he says, I'm going to go now out into the Gentile world. I have a change coming in, in my ministry in a new way. I have a change coming in my life in this new way. I'm now going out. He had a significant uh, direction change in his purpose. And isn't that interesting? It kind of goes back to purpose once again. That because his purpose had changed, he began speaking something different over his life. Now, I, you know, I, I don't want to call myself this top, top of the heap guy anymore. I, I'm no longer the great one here on earth because my life has changed. Because my purpose and my focus have changed, I now am going to confess over myself humility. A humble heart wanting to serve Christ rather than make myself king, make myself great. Another part of, of this is that he was going out into a Gentile region and Greek would have been the language spoken in that time. And he changed his name to Paul because Paul was a Greek name. He wanted to go and he wanted to be familiar with the people. Saul was a very Hebrew name. Peter was a very Greek name. And so he wanted to change what he called himself so that he could be effective in the ministry he was going to do. He changed um, this, this attribute of himself. Rather than, you know, I'm top, I'm, I'm going out and I'm persecuting Christians. I'm changing now to a humble heart, a humble attitude to go and serve the Gentile world. Before he was great for being of the right bloodline and keeping traditions. We could say his, his definition or his refinement came because he was doing the right stuff, because he had the right heritage. But after this, when Saul became Paul, when he had been converted by Jesus, when he experienced Jesus and got this new definition for his life, he began talking about how the one great thing about him was the God inside of him. Isn't that interesting? That Paul no longer goes on and talks about, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, I studied under all the right people, I have all the right background. You don't hear that from him except for when he's talking about how he used to be. Now, he says the, great, the one great thing about me is that I have God inside of me. And that's the change that has to happen in all of us. This is what humility really is, is realizing the one really great thing about me is that God's inside of me. Not that I don't have other great things about me or other talents or abilities or that there are other good things about me. There are, praise the Lord, I, I am beautifully and wonderfully made by the Creator. 
But the one great thing about me, the one thing that gives me value, the one thing that really matters is that I have Christ in me. And when that changes, we are able to live up to a definition. We are able to become refined because it's no longer my greatness making me great. It's no longer my greatness defining me, but it's Christ defining me. It's God defining me because he is the one great thing about me. He is, he is the one thing that really matters. I think this is the accurate view of humility. We see Paul write about it a number of times. I'm, I'm going to read these quick. If we can get them on the screen, we will. Ephesians 3 verse 8 says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I'm, I'm little, I'm least, but I have this great grace inside of me. I have this great gift from God on the inside of me. And that's where I get my definition. That's where I get my purpose. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. He says, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. It's all to him. Glory to God. Amen. He says, I don't want the glory. Because it's God's. Because the good things that are happening in my life are because of God. Not because of me. He's like, I, I tried to make it happen on my own for all these years. And all I did was destroy Christians. I messed it up. I missed it when I was doing it on my own and for my own glory. But because I have a new purpose now. Because I have a new definition now. Glory to God. God's getting glory out of my life. Because he's the one thing. He's the main thing. Isn't God the main thing? Galatians 6, 14 says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God forbid that I should boast. This is strong language. I mean, like, this is intense from Paul. He says, God forbid that I should boast, that I should brag, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing that I'll brag about, the one thing that I'll talk a lot about myself is that Christ is in me. I will share that all day, every day. I, I will shout that from the mountaintop because that is the one thing that matters more than anything else. The fact that I am in Christ is the one thing that gives me definition. And when, I, and when I begin to define myself as a child of Christ, a, a, a person that is in Christ, my definition now is, is one that I can, I can attain. I can, I can live up to that because Christ is in me. It's really true. Isn't it true? He's in you. And so as I say now that the one great thing about me is that Christ is in me, and because he's in me, he, he changes these things about me. He refines me. It takes it takes the focus off of me and my ability and it places the focus on Christ and what he can do. It puts the focus on grace rather than my own work. And that's why it works. Is because when I take the focus off of what I'm able to do all by myself and I put the focus on this is what Christ does in me and, and, and changes me and refines me, then he can do it. You know, if, if I don't give him the space to refine me, he can't refine me. Because he isn't going to force anything on you. He's not going to make you change. Christ isn't going to make you change. Do you know that to be the truth? He's not going to force you to change. 
But when we have an accurate view of humility and we say, the one great thing about me is that Christ is in me and he's refining me. And we give glory to him for that. That's where we're going to start seeing results. That's where Paul started seeing results in his life is he was changed because he gave all glory to God. And that's what we have. This is accurate humility, giving all glory to God. James 4 verse 10 says, but he gives more grace. He wants to give you more grace. He wants to give you more ability. He wants to make you able to do things you could never do on your own. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God wants you all to have grace. Like He, he doesn't, if, if you've had pride in your life, and I have, and so I, I can talk about this. If you've had pride where you think, you know, I've got this figured out on my own. Well, then you're closing off the door to receive grace. Because you're telling God, I don't need it. Pride says, I don't, I don't need your help. Humility, accurate humility says, because the grace is coming in, I know that this can happen. Because God's grace is coming in and, and empowering me, I know that this can happen. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit is coming into me, I know that this can happen. And it's not because I'm great or I have the power to do it, but it's because God is making me able. Because Jesus Christ is changing me from the inside out. Amen? Let's look at point number four. The third is we need an accurate view of humility. And to just talk for a minute about the other end of that, uh, of humility, as, as we're going to go to Acts 28 next. The other end of humility, obviously what we've said so far with accurate humility is that we need to look at it like it's, I'm valued, I'm accepted, I'm, I'm worth something because of Christ in me. You know, we, we can go too far the other way we, where we get into pride. It's also possible to go too far the other way where you get into self-depreciation or, or you don't look at yourself as Christ has called you. And instead of seeing yourself as a child of God and someone who Christ lives in and, and I have something great inside of me, you can get to the point where it's just, oh, there's nothing. You know, oh, I don't have anything good. I've, I've dealt with that too before where I think, oh, there's just, it's not there. Oh, I just, I don't have the value. Oh, I don't have this. Well, that's not what God wants for you either. And that's not true humility. I think the enemy wants to skew humility sometimes to think, humil if you're going to really be humble, you just have to think that you're nothing. That's a lie from the devil. That is a lie from the devil. You have tremendous value because of Christ in you. Christ is what defines us. Acts 28, 3-6, our fourth point. And I think this, this one, it's just, it's so cool. I mean, I think you guys are really going to love this. Point number four is that we need to know we've been freed from the penalty of sin. The price of sin. We're freed from it. And this is God's grace working in us once again. Acts 28, 3-6 says, But when Paul had gathered, I'll give you background on this, he had been sailing, he'd been out on the ocean, the, the ship wrecked on this island of Malta, and so now they're here and, and they're, they're creating a fire and there are tribe, uh, indigenous people that are there with them and, and this is kind of where we pick up. They're off on this, on this island while they're waiting for, uh, well, another boat so they can sail on to their destination. And so they're here on this island. These, tribe, these tribes and indigenous people are there with them. It says, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, 
yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. I think this account is so cool because it illustrates the redemptive power of Christ in our life. Paul was a murderer. The tribe got it right. The, the people, like, they kind of knew what they were talking about. This, this snake, like, I guess it had a reputation for biting murderers. And when it bit Paul, they said, oh, well, we, we know what this guy's done. Man, sometimes sin tries to do that. It, it tries to come out and, and define you. Something from your past tries to come back and define you again. Well, the redemptive power of Christ is that God in you breaks the penalty of sin. By this standard, naturally what should have happened is Paul should have died. But because of God in him, they said, this guy, I guess, maybe he's not a murderer. Maybe he's not going to die. He must, they say he must be a God. I think that is so interesting because Paul was not a God, but he did have God in him. And it is only by the power of God that the penalty of sin can be broken. That we can be freed from the consequence that is supposed to come with sin. We have obtained redemption by God in us. That's good news. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be God, because he has begotten us again. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. See, Paul had been spiritually cleansed from his past. That, that penalty that he was supposed to incur did not come because God redeemed him. And what's so interesting about this too is that when God redeems us through the blood of Jesus, it does not just cover up our sin. It, it does not just like prolong the penalty, like you know, move it back further along the way. It, it, it's not just like a, a pass for a while and then the sin comes back and gets you at a later date. It gets rid of it completely. When you receive redemption in Christ, your sin is washed away. You're made clean. You're made redeemed for eternity. Not just for a little while. And we see that here with Paul, that he was made free of the penalty of his sin. Isn't that great? Yes, it is. We're going to look at one more point here, and we're going to close this morning. The fifth thing I see with Paul and his identity that, that it changed the way he was defined and refined, is he began to become selfless with gifts, talents, skills, all for God's glory. Now, we already talked about this a little bit on the third point of humility, but Acts 26, 22 gives us even greater insight. It says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. He says, it's by obtaining help from God that to this day I stand and do what he's called me to do. Witnessing both small and great. 
He says, I'm, I'm living out my purpose because God's given me the help to do it. God's put something in me to do what he asked me to do. And it's because that that's in there. It's because Christ and his grace and the Holy Spirit are in me that I can be what God has defined me to be. Amen. We read a couple other scriptures about this. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, written by Paul, by the way. He says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is enough to make you successful in his purpose for your life. He says, I will boast in my weakness. God's strength is perfected in my weakness. Where I can't do it on my own is where God is going to show up the loudest and the brightest and do the most. Because he's going to get all the glory for it. Nobody can point to my area of weakness and say, oh, well, that, that might have been God or it might have just been him. No, where I'm weak, God is strong. And God shows so bright. His light shines so bright in the areas that I allow him to bring grace where I've been weak before. You know, God's given you grace today to fulfill his purpose for your life. Amen. You know that? He, is, he has defined you as a person that has grace. He has defined you as a person that has purpose. And if we start seeing ourselves in that light rather than any other, well, we'll be like Paul. We're going to go out and we're going to do great things for God's kingdom. How many of you want to do great things for God's kingdom? Yes. Amen. Romans 12, 6 through 8, the last scripture I want to read this morning says this. Talking to the gifts that we use for God, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. See, God's grace is given to you so that you can use it selflessly. For his glory. When we see ourselves as a person that has obtained gifts, have obtained grace from God, and we say, the reason I've been given this is, is not for my own pleasure or enjoyment, but because I want to selflessly serve his kingdom. God is going to be so glorified through your life. Isn't that good? That our life can glorify God in heaven? It's amazing that, that he would use us. I mean, kind of going back to the humble thing, right? That he would use someone like me to glorify him. Amen. That he would choose me to be a vessel that he puts gifts and grace and his very spirit inside of so that I could do great things for his kingdom and bring him glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Paul was redefined. Paul the spiritually unrefined person, even though he looked refined on the outside, had his life changed forever. Mm-hmm. And it was because he had an encounter with Jesus. Yes. It was because he, he gave up man's standard for his life and accepted God's. It was because he had an accurate view of humility. He knew that I, I by myself am not worth a whole lot. But with Christ in me, I'm worth a lot. Amen. With Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God is a part of my life. 
I have worth. He was freed from the penalty. You know, if he didn't get free from that penalty of sin, he would not have been able to go out and minister. If there would not have been redemption and freedom from the past, he could not have gone and preached the name of Jesus. He had done so much against that name that if there was not a washing away, he wouldn't have been able to go out and do anything for Christ's name. He had to get the reality that he'd been freed from the penalty of sin. And he chose to selflessly serve for God's glory. Do you want to do that this morning? Do you want to be redefined and become refined the way Christ wants you to be so that we can glorify God in a greater way? Would you close your eyes and pray with me this morning? As we've received this word, as we've heard what God says, as we've looked to Paul and seen a life completely changed, completely redefined and refined for God, Lord, I want that same thing for me today. If you believe this, I want you to just lift a hand. If, if you want this, I want you to just lift a hand. If you want this kind of refinement and redefinition for your life today, I just want you to lift up a hand. And as I pray, I want you to believe this along with me. God, I thank you that this word is true. You are faithful to redefine and refine us. Lord, I pray that where I've missed it, where I've, I've remained unrefined, God, that you would change that now. You would begin speaking to me about that now. You would begin showing me. If it's one of these five things that we've talked about, if I need an encounter with you, Lord, I know you're calling. And I hear. And I respond. If, if I need humility or, or I need to give up someone else's standard of refinement, if I need to give up someone else's standard of success, God, I release it now. I let go so that I can receive your standard of success because there is no other that has the eternal power of your definition, of your standard for my life. I thank you, God, that I'm free from the penalty of sin, that I've been redeemed, washed and made clean. God, as you redefine me, as you refine me, as you instill grace in the Holy Spirit, your word inside of me, God, I will use it to serve you. My definition now, Lord, is to be your servant. You are my Lord, which means I serve you. I commit my life to this purpose that I, I live to serve you, God. I have been saved to serve you. I thank you that where I've been weak, you are very, very strong. And you bring the grace that I need to fulfill my purpose successfully today. Hallelujah. We thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I don't, I don't do this every week, but if you guys would close your eyes one more time, I want to I wanna just make sure we've all had the first thing happen that needs to happen to be redefined. Would you all close your eyes with me right now? And what I want to do is ask this. If there's anybody in here who has never had an encounter with Jesus, if you've never received Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, what I want you to do is raise your hand, and we want to pray with you as you receive Christ, as you encounter Christ. He is calling out. Saying, come to me. Come into my family. Come into this fellowship. Hallelujah. Well, I don't see anybody, which means we're all part of that fellowship of Christ. Isn't it a great thing to be part of God's family? Amen. Amen. Well, this, this is the end of our service this morning, so I just want to say thank you for coming out. Thank you for hearing this word. I pray as we go today. As this would be real to us. It would be alive in our hearts. That we would begin to see ourselves through God's perspective of potential rather than on any other 
perspective that we might have had in the past. Lord, we thank you for that perspective in our life today. I thank you that you are revealing to us more and more and more each day who we are in Christ. We believe it. We receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go and be blessed today. And we'll see you Wednesday.